Well, let me uh, begin today with a question to you. Do you think Jesus's ministry was a success? Was it successful? Um, did, did, did he actually accomplish what he wanted to accomplish? I think you think back of what we've been doing with this book of John for seemingly forever, um, and Jesus has been talking about all these great signs, these seven great signs, and he's had these great speeches uh, all building up to what? Has, has it actually done anything? Has he achieved anything? And the very first verse in our passage today, in verse 37, is this. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Mm. And so if this is the sum total of your ministry, that after all of your work, like that the crowds still don't believe in you, that when he came to his own, his own did not receive him. Like, if Jesus is so widely rejected, like, can we really take him seriously? If he wasn't able to, to, to convince the influencers of the time, if he wasn't able to, to bring apart all of these crowds and these hordes of people to follow him in his own day, how are we to, to judge his ministry? Was it a success? And I think when we, we think of it in that way, um, we, we have to ask the question, what's our definition of success? And so oftentimes we fall into the trap of, of measuring success based on popularity. Uh, and so success equals popular. Success is about numbers and profits and popularity. Uh, so you can think of a successful musician. Who do you think of? Maybe Kendrick Lamar. I would argue that Kendrick Lamar is a very successful musician. He is king, <laughs> and he still is king, <laughs> right? We got, we got one. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> to, to make sure we get all, all of the, the different genres in here, <laughs> I would say U2 is also very successful. Are you on board with U2 as well? Not so much. <laughs> but I would say they're very successful as well. Would you say that? They've, they've, they've spanned, I don't know how many decades of, of, uh, in, in the industry. But let me ask you this question. Have you ever heard of the band Beggar Street Social? Anyone? We got one. You know why you've never heard of them? Because that was the band I was in in college. <laughs> what about Rusted Fish Tanks? Anyone hear of that band? Not even the one. No? I, I, I was certain you were at my block party in 1995 when our band, <laughs> the Rusted Fish Tanks, <laughs> performed these great songs. I'm pretty sure we covered Rage Against the Machine. It was great. But we think of successful bands that have these massive albums and sell out stadiums. But what about the church? How would you define success for the church? Typically, we go with the same metrics. A successful church is a big church. A sex, successful church is one that, is, that, it, that it has, has so much going for it, and we think of the smaller, struggling churches, and we, go, we, th we feel bad for them. We're like, ah, they're just not making it. They're not successful. But if we use that same metrics and we apply it to Jesus, our modern metrics of what success is, Jesus' ministry then would not be a success. Because he didn't have a megachurch. He didn't convince all the influencers and all the masses to get behind him. He's not winning a popularity contest. And in fact, everyone, almost everyone, abandons him at his death. So is that a success? 
I would argue in that definition, it, is, it was not. I mean, think of what happens. This is Jesus' last public speaking gig. This is his last public sermon, right before he goes in to have some more intimate conversations with his disciples. Then they abandon him, and then the masses crucify him alone. And so this is his last public sermon, and he's giving a, a last call, as it were. Last call. Who wants in on this? And most of this passage is about those who will not believe, who don't believe in him. But it's for the purpose of arguing to get those to believe in him. And so that's the title of my sermon today, How to Believe in Jesus. And here's the path that we're going to go to get there. We're going to look at disbelief, unbelief, and true belief. Disbelief, unbelief, and true belief. Uh, All right, disbelief. Uh, Have you ever found yourself in disbelief? where you've said something like, I just can't. I just can't. Like, you've heard something so absurd and so ridiculous. You're like, I just can't anymore. Like, how do you believe this? Maybe you've talked to someone who who believes um, something ridiculous, like, like alien reptiles have taken over our biggest leaders in the world, the CEOs and the political leaders, and they're now ruling our government. Have you heard this? And you're just like, I just can't with you. Like, how do you even believe something so ridiculous. Like, my brain cannot compute how your brain works in this moment. I just can't. And it's all well and good and funny when we say something like I, I, that, that type of disbelief. But in regards to the question of how do I believe in Jesus, and the answer is, I just can't, or you just can't. That's kind of hard to hear. Well, look at verse 37. It says they would not believe in verse 37, But why? It's because they can't believe in verse 39. Verse 39 says this, For this reason they could not believe. That's rough to hear. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes. this This is a very hard conversation for us to have today. It deals with some really uncomfortable things, but also it's, just, it's hard because it, it, it feels like your brain is bending as you're, as you're hearing this. Part of this passage says that the people would not believe, and part of the passage says that they cannot believe, and so which is it? Yes is the answer. <laughs> yes is the answer. This is like in the book of Exodus when God says that he is going to release the people from the tyranny of Pharaoh. And in Exodus 9, 12, it says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And yet a chapter earlier, in chapter eight thirty two, it says, but this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart or hardened his own heart and would not let the people go. And so which is it? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? And the answer is totally. I bet you would hate having a conversation with me. (laughs) Elsewhere, God says something like this as well. He he says, I'm going to send Assyria to attack you and to punish you, Israel. And then a chapter later, he punishes Assyria for what they did. And so who, who is at work here? Is it God or is it humankind? Yes. If, you, if your brain is starting to break and you're like, I just don't know how you think like this, this is all distilled into one verse in Acts 2.23. Acts 2.23 has both of this. Look at this verse. This man, Jesus, who was talking to you, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. 
And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. It is a wild verse if you look at that verse. Like, it was God's plan for Jesus to come and die for his people. That was God's plan. And yet, who is responsible? Wicked men. How does God uphold both? And when we think of this question, we're talking about the question of God's sovereignty, human responsibility, free will, all of those things. And sometimes we like to think of this in like percentages. Like God is 80% in control, but we're 20% in control of our lives. So God has the bulk of it, but we got to do our part. Or maybe you think of it the flip of that. You're like, well, God's 20% in control. He's generally in control, but we really got to do our part. And so it's 20-80. Maybe you think it's 50-50. You do your part, I do my part, it all works out. I don't know how it works out. But what the scriptures affirm is none of those. Scriptures affirm 100-100, that God is 100% in control and that we are 100% responsible for our actions. And you go, I don't know how that works. And I'm with you. <laughs> I don't know how that works, but that's what scripture affirms right here. It's like two tracks on a railroad that that, that never meet, but both are always present. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh hardened his own heart. How does that work? We don't know, but here's what we think of. We think of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. We think of, it's not like he's the puppet master making Pharaoh do something he didn't want to do. When God hardens humans' hearts, What he does is he lets the humans do what they ultimately want to do. So with Pharaoh, he let Pharaoh do what Pharaoh really wanted to do, and it was to keep the people in slavery. That's God's hardening act, is a letting us do exactly what we want. That's a a dark thing to think about. When you think about people who you know who have hardened hearts, They're doing exactly what they want, right? They're always going after what they want. They have a hard heart, and God, we don't understand why, but he's letting them go after what they want. And so this is what we are talking about in this passage, is that Jesus is coming to these people with hardened hearts, and John is actually pulling a ton from the prophet Isaiah. All throughout the, the Gospel of John, he pulls from all the prophets, but Isaiah particularly in this passage, and he, t- he talks about, and so in Isaiah 6, you have Isaiah, and he goes into the throne room of God. We sung about it earlier today with holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah goes into the throne room of God, and he sees all these angels just swirling about. I mean, just awe and, and wonder. And in that room, in Isaiah 6, it says 6-3, holy, 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 the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Mm. This is the picture of walking into the presence and the awesomeness and the greatness of the Lord where these angels are swirling about and their singing is shaking everything. It's that loud. It has that much thunder behind it. And in that moment, you're not feeling too good about yourself. And you walk into that and you go, oh, I don't belong here. And that's what Isaiah says, woe is me, I am undone. Because when we see God's holiness, we become undone. It's too holy. 
But then God takes a coal and he puts it on his lips as a way to purify Isaiah to say, I'm inviting you to stay in my presence. And if you've and then the verse after this, if you've ever been to like a missions conference, they usually quote this verse. If you've ever been a, a called as a, at a church to go off and do mission work, they use this verse. And it's this beautiful verse. The Lord, in verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Ooh, isn't that inspiring? Who will go? Who will go abroad? Who will just go like we all want to be that, we all want to be Isaiah and say, here am I, I'll answer the call, send me. Usually those mission conferences don't quote the verse right after that. Because <laughs> verse 8 is so inspiring. <laughs> and then verse 9 tells Isaiah what his ministry is going to be like. Here's who you're going to be reaching, Isaiah. And in verse 9, it says, These people will be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. And Isaiah is like, okay, so they're, they're not going to listen, but, but like for how long? And God tells him, until the cities lie in ruin and everyone is sent away. And so he's like, oh, so this isn't going to go well. Cool, 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 cool. I, that's definitely how he responded. And John tells us in our gospel today, in verse 41, says, Isaiah said this, because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. What does he mean by that? Isaiah said this because he looked ahead and he saw that this was about Jesus. And what we are being told here is that Isaiah's ministry was just a shadow of what Jesus' ministry would be. That both of these prophets were going to speak to people whose hearts were turned off and closed off and blind to God. They were going to be speaking to people, and no one would respond. And so we, it's no surprise that there was no success in Jesus' ministry, if you use that term success in that way. I mean, it's no surprise that when we see Lazarus raised from the dead a chapter ago, in the verse after he had been raised from the dead should have been, and everyone believed, right? You see someone coming alive from death, you're like, I believe. But look at 1145. It says, many of the Jews believed in him. Many, which is great. But why does it not say everyone? Because some people's hearts were hard. They could not see it for what it was. They were blind to the realities right before them. And so I think many times we today in our world would want to say something like, if I could just get a sign from the Lord, if the Lord would just reveal himself to me, then I could believe then I, will, I, would, I would sell everything and I would go all in on Jesus. But what this passage tells us is that even if God gave us that sign, we in our hearts would be blind to it at times. We would, have, we, we would just say, I, I didn't see it. And maybe he has been giving us a sign and we're not seeing it. This is the, this is the hard part about this, this passage. We're off to a great start. First, disbelief. I can't believe. <laughs> but it gets worse. Now let's talk about unbelief or I won't believe. Verse 42, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. And you're like, oh good, let's celebrate. Not so fast. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Mm. 
So now we are not only fighting capability, we are fighting culpability. Not that I just can't, but I don't even want to believe. Even if I'm given the opportunity, I don't want to believe because I'm tempted by so many other shiny objects in the world. And the shiniest object of all is in verse 43, they loved human praise more than praise from God. Oh, as a people pleaser, I resonate. Is this not the most timely passage of our day, right? In a day when church leaders are worried that if I speak up, I will lose my base. I will lose donors. We actually had someone tell us that if I condemned the January 6th insurrection the way you guys did, I would lose half my church. And our response to them was, that sounds like a you problem. (laughs) We said it a nicer way. You probably need to disciple your church. Uh, (laughs) Because you see, it's, it's cowardice and fear that is driving the church. Cowardice and fear drives the church today. It's fear of, will we lose people? But it's not just church leaders. It's not just the crowds in this text that are in need of a spine. It's every single one of us. Every single one of us, we fear really applying the gospel. If we really applied the gospel, if we actually said, what if Jesus was serious? What if Jesus was serious with some of his commands? That scares us. Like, we're afraid of really suffering, of really resisting the powers and the principalities that keep us comfortable. Like, I won't speak up because then I won't belong to my group, whichever group that is that I belong to. Like, it's easy to lob grenades at the other side, whatever side that is, but can I even speak up and critique my own group? That's, that's a hard one, because we, we, we fear being kept out of that group. We love human praise more than the praise from God. That word praise there could also mean glory. We love human glory more than the glory of God. Is it, is it one nation under God, or is it God under one nation? Which do we care more about? Do we care more about comfort, or do we care more about praise? It's natural to want praise from people. It's natural to want to be told, well done, good job. I get that. I, I, I want that. But we have to ask the question of what is truly driving us? Do I really believe this stuff? Am I someone for whom identifying as a Christian is just a badge of belonging so I can feel comfortable here in Central Texas? Or do I have a badge of belonging knowing that it's going to be to my shame when the world comes after me? Someone who who refuses to apply this deeply personal and communal and cosmic gospel. Like, do I I take it that seriously? Seriously. And so the, the first part of this passage talks about the people who, who outright don't believe. But the second part of this passage talks about the people who believe, but do nothing about it. And the end result is they're the same people. They become the same people. Earlier in this, this service, we, we had that famous James passage, and the verses preceding that were, was this uh, in 2.14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? 
Suppose a brother or sister was without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? This makes me think the modern day version of this is thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Our thoughts and prayers goes out to the victims of the the most recent mass shooting. And yes, we should have thoughts and prayers about these things. But when we say thoughts and prayers, and yet we do nothing about it, nothing about changing the laws to let an 18-year-old white supremacist have access to an AR-15, nothing about this, this, this website that's discipling these people, 4chan, and live streaming it, like, what good is it if we do nothing about it? Like, change has to happen. We have to be inspired to move as Christians to make these types of changes. It goes on, verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You guys know that James is the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, what he's trying to say to you here is that saving faith changes you. You shouldn't be the same person today as you were before you believed. It should have an effect on you. If it doesn't, otherwise, James is saying, our faith is dead. Unbelief is dead. Dead orthodoxy is still dead. Our faith should be so radical, and it should change so much around us, that it doesn't make sense if Jesus didn't get up from the grave. That if Jesus didn't get up from the grave, people would look at us and laugh at us. Because our faith is so convinced by the hope that is in the the resurrection of Jesus. People should look at us and say, you should despair. But because we believe there is hope, that that God raised Jesus from the dead, we actually have hope. I mean, this, this should change us. If Jesus got up from the grave, that becomes my north star. And that is what drives and changes all my decisions now. If Jesus got up, then I will speak up. If Jesus got up, then I will get up and I will give away my time. I will give away my money and my patience to seek mercy and justice and shalom in our cities. This is what, it should change us. And so we leave disbelief and unbelief and now we're talking about true belief. True belief that affects our heads, our hearts, and our hands. True belief has both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, what we believe, and orthopraxy, what we do. It holds both of these things true for true belief to be there. How do you believe is the title of the sermon. How do you believe in Jesus? Romans 10.9 spells it out for us in the most simple way. Romans 10.9, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a a beautiful verse for anyone who's wondering. Maybe you said, I've I've been around church for a while and I don't know, how do I believe? This verse is spelling it out for you. How do you believe? Two things. We declare that Jesus is our Lord or King. And two, we, we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's what scripture says. And so... Declare Jesus as king means I need to change my actions. If, I'm, if he's the king and I'm living in his kingdom, I've got to change. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to have a new loyalty, a new allegiance. This is what we just talked about. But, but two, I need to trust that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient for my sins. 
Did you guys know that there's going to be a day of judgment? Verse, verse 48 tells us, There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. And so there will be a last day. History is moving to that point, that there will be a last day when God will judge every single one of us, and this should scare the ever-living heaven out of you. It's so scary that it, it, it's, it's almost laughable for Christians to believe this, that there is a judgment day. Like, I can't believe in a God who judges and some people see Christians who believe in a judgment day like this as the alien reptile people. They're like, I, can't, I just can't believe that you would believe this. But let me just say this. Two things. There has to be a judgment day. And two, there can't be a judgment day. Doing all of the mind benders today. There has to be a judgment day and there can't be a judgment day. And the first reason why there has to be a judgment day comes from a Croatian theologian, Miroslav Volf, and he says this in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance or justice will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. Violence thrives secretly by belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. He goes on to talk about this, that if, if we can't believe in a God who is angry, then we don't, he is, that God is not worthy of our worship. Like, if you've ever been the victim of an injustice, you will want to pick up the sword. You will want justice to be had. Like, what do you say to someone whose daughter was murdered? Hey, it's really not nice to repay evil for evil. God wouldn't want that. Like, like, no. Like, we should be in despair if we don't believe in a God who actually believes in judgment, that those who perpetuate evil will get justice. We, we, we have no hope if we don't have that. We, we have to pray for a judgment. For anyone who's been the victim of these extreme acts of injustice and oppression, they are praying for a judgment day. And we would, ought to be praying with them. And so on the one hand, if there isn't a judgment day, there is no hope. But two, if there is a judgment day, then we have no hope. Who could stand as Isaiah walks into the presence of the Lord? Who could stand and feel good about themselves walking into the presence of Yahweh? Like, you become undone because we are people of unclean lips, as it says. And so Christians, like... It's, it's right for non-Christians to critique us Christians for being so judgy. Because some of us Christians need to quit being so judgy. But not because judgment is bad, as we just talked about. It's because Jesus tells us that the way that we judge others will be judged about us. Like, do you get that? That the way we judge others, God says, that's how I will judge you. And some of you could say, well, what about the people who've never heard, who never believed, who don't even, know, don't even have a Bible? And, and God says, I, I, I won't even judge you by my standard. I'll judge you by your standard. The way that you judge others is the way I will judge you. And so Francis Schaeffer has this great, great analogy. He talks about how every single one of us has this invisible tape recorder um, around our neck like a necklace. And that it comes on and records our words every time we say the words, you ought, or you should, or you need to, 
or stop doing this. And so every time we say that, that recorder comes on, and at the end of time, God's going to play the recorder and then judge you based off of the oughts and the, and the needs and the shoulds and the can'ts that you have given to others. And that ought to scare us. Because we can't even live up to our own judgments of others, let alone the judgment of God. And we, as a people who have the scriptures, who have the words, who have heard the Ten Commandments, are now judged by those, as well as Jesus' commands. And so who could stand in the presence of God? Like, we, we've been told about greed and pride and lust. There is a judgment day. And so we should have no hope if that's true. But verse 47 tells us this. Jesus says, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus' whole posture towards you is not one of judgment. His whole posture towards you is wanting none to perish and wanting all to come. He says, I, I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. That's his, his heart that is breaking for you. Jesus' words are written down here for us to see. And that's what he means when he says that my very words stand as a judge. But Jesus himself isn't wanting anyone to perish. And so if you are united to Christ by faith, I want you to see that your judgment day has already passed. Do you see that? Jesus says, I don't judge you because your judgment day has already passed. That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was not only his judgment day, but it was your judgment day as well. Do, you, do, you, do we see that? That when God pours out his wrath on Jesus, that is him pouring out the wrath there, that we no longer get that wrath of, of God here, that my judgment day has already passed. And so when God looks at me, he says, not guilty? Woo. He doesn't say just not guilty. He says proven innocent. We get Jesus' track record. We get justified. Oh, it is beautiful that God has accepted Jesus' death as payment completed on our behalf. And knowing this truth should make all the difference in the world. Like knowing this truth should change us drastically. If I realize that my judgment day has already come and gone, then I'm... I don't care what you have to say about me. We're a judgy people, right? Even the ones who say we don't judge. We judge everything. We judge waistlines. We judge weight lines. We judge online. Like, we, we are judging so much. But if we know that our judgment day has been passed, we're free. We are free. Like, we're free to not have to live for the praise of men anymore. We're free to live radically, to be generous, and to live sacrificially. We're free to fight for justice because I know that my king doesn't see me as an enemy anymore, but as an instrument in his hands. Isn't it just beautiful that we have a God who has overcome your disbelief and your unbelief by his death for your true belief? Oh, <laughs> It's beautiful. He, he has that much love for you, that how much he's had to overcome, how much he loves you and sees you as his prized possession, as someone who's lost something. You ever lost something? You ever lost your phone? Oh, that's a bad feeling. <laughs> you, you search all over. When God lost humanity at the fall, he searched all over for you. 
And he's come for you. And the joy that you have when you find it, the same joy the Lord has when you do believe. Oh, I pray that if you don't know Jesus, that you would know that joy today. That you would come to belief. You would come to faith. And you would celebrate with, with the one who loves you that deeply. And so believe your judgment day has passed and declare Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. Let me pray.